0: Ukraine is definitely going forward, but it's very, it's not some kind of big breakthrough. Territory is only a small part of, of what we, of what the real picture is. What expectations can you possibly have for a military operation the likes of which we've n- not seen before? People comparing it to D-Day. Western officials, Knew that Ukraine wasn't getting enough, but they hoped that Ukrainian bravery and innovation would would pull them through. It's wishful thinking.
1: The overall assessment of the counteroffensive is that it's extremely costly and that it is potentially maybe one of the most bloody operations that we've seen. Hi everyone, my name is Anastasia Lapatina, and you're listening to This Week in Ukraine, a video podcast from The Cube Independent. Every week, I sit down with one of my newsroom colleagues to dive into Ukraine's most pressing issues. And today, we're talking about Ukraine's counteroffensive, the progress and the setbacks of the last two months, and what we can expect going forward. I'm joined by The Cube Independent reporter Francis Farrell. Francis, welcome back to the show.
0: Always good to be back.
1: So you just returned from a working trip from the front line. So tell us a bit about where you were and what you saw there.
0: Yeah. So I was in kind of the old hunting ground, uh, Donetsk Oblast around Bakhmut, the place, which is seen probably the most intense fighting of the war for the last year or so. Um, so this isn't the famous southern front line where everyone was expecting the counteroffensive, but there have been a lot of offensive uh, actions on the Ukrainian side in that area. They, they've definitely taken back the initiative there. So I, I spent time with infantry, with artillery, uh, with the drone unit as well, uh, learned a lot about what the fighting looks like now. And uh, yeah, Ukraine is definitely going forward, but it's very it's not some kind of big breakthrough. It's, it's infantry assaults, one position, one trench at a time, one kilometer at a time or even less. And then you know, fighting back the Russian counterattacks, the Russian attempts to, to take those positions back. And what's interesting about the Bakhmut area now is that, you know, these are not new brigades. These are the same brigades that have been there for months and months and months, almost all of them at least since winter. And it definitely, it's, it's very different from what people perceive the counteroffensive as looking like. People think about new brigades, people think about the Southern Front Line and Right. Big initiative to, to break through. And the soldiers there, they you know, they kind of find the word counteroffensive quite funny. They don't they Why? don't see what they're doing in context of a counteroffensive. It's it's basically yeah, the same the same kind of fighting that they've been doing for many months. Uh, They've just got the initiative now, but but they know that it's going to be a long fight. There's no immediate, quick victory in sight. And it's interesting. Many of them are quite tired, but they've also... Kind of accepted their fate in many ways. Like we're we're here. We're gonna keep going. We're gonna keep going, and we'll see what happens.
1: So the last time that we talked to you about the counteroffensive, it was on June sixteenth, and the counteroffensive was just starting, and it was way too early to assess any tangible results. But it's been almost exactly over two months since then. So what can you tell us about the results now? How much land has been liberated?
0: Yes, yeah, so when we last spoke, I guess that was. Almost when the most action happened, uh, we saw Ukraine advancing in several directions, mm-hmm. we saw several villages taken in the first week. Uh, since then it's been basically one long period of a much slower, more attritional fight. Interesting. Um, and occasionally we've seen them kind of lurch forward. So, okay. We see videos from drones. Okay, this is a Ukrainian attack. Uh, they're moving forward with with some of their new armored vehicles, and they're trying to take new positions. But that that's a rarity. Most of the time, it was quite static, quite attritional. We're actually at an interesting stage right now. In the last few days, we've seen some developments. Uh, another village has been taken along the river under Velika Novosilka. So that was one of the axes just in the west of Donetsk Oblast, mm-hmm. where Ukraine took about four or five villages very quickly. Progress has still been slow, but just yesterday they took another one and they announced it officially. So again, we'll see what happens. Again, that's still quite far away from the first line of real strong defense that Russia built in that area. Then uh, further west, uh, in Zaporizhia Oblast, and just to refresh, I guess, for our listeners, that's where the, the Russian defenses are the strongest. You have lines and lines of mm-hmm. minefields, dragons, teeth, anti-tank trenches, and so on. Um, and so progress there has been very slow. Ukraine hasn't taken this town of Robotine, which is, it's been pushing up against since the beginning of the counteroffensive, still hasn't taken it. But uh, last few days, again, there's signs that Ukraine is pushing forward, taking some new positions. Uh, Russian Telegram channels talked about it a little bit. So potentially something could happen there. But again, that's where Russia has defense line after defense line. Of course, there's Bakhmut as well. But as I said, like my impression from from the trip there was that it's the same kind of fighting. Uh, Ukraine's just taking the initiative more and we'll see what kind of gains could happen in the future. Uh, some of the commanders told me that Russia actually moved some of their better troops that were defending the south southern front line. Once they saw that the southern front line was pretty stable, they they felt like they could hold it no problem. They moved uh, those troops back to the Bakhmut area, mm-hmm. which means that it might be difficult for Ukraine to push much further in the next few months. But but we'll need to see. Of course, in the end, when it comes to all of this, what are the results so far? Um, what's been liberated territory is only a small part of of what we of what the real picture is in terms of this counteroffensive well what what we know a lot less about is what losses have been suffered on each side so we have the ukrainian figures uh about russian losses they've been consistently quite high so we're looking at around between 5 6 700 russian casualties every day and, but what's more interesting is on you, on the Ukrainian side is the number of artillery pieces lost by the Russians, uh, which is consistently like a dozen, two dozen uh, every day, which is not usually that high because normally your artillery sits a lot further back and it's a lot harder to, to reach it. So that's evidence that Ukraine has been really uh, stepping up its counter battery fire. Mm-hmm. So really trying to knock out Russian artillery.
1: Which has been a really important component of the war, right? A lot of our losses have been due to Russian artillery.
0: Absolutely. It's, it's been the main thing that's given Russia the kind of brute mm-hmm. force advantage over this, over this whole war. Artillery and, and infantry, of course. And now it looks like in some areas, Ukraine might actually have a bit of an advantage in artillery. It's very hard to say. Um, but yeah, with the attrition, of course, and we don't know... What losses the Ukrainian side has suffered um, taking these taking these uh, territories. So it, it all depends on that. That's probably honestly the the more important factor as opposed to what changes we see on the map.
1: So is this all the result that everybody has been kind of expecting? And I'm sure there are kind of two groups in this to consider like the Western group and the people just watching this unfold. And then the Ukrainians, I feel like we've been approaching this a bit differently, but, um, is this kind of what we've expected?
0: Yeah. So I've been talking about this a lot and writing about this a lot, uh, because, because that for me was just dominating my mind for months before this counteroffensive was starting, everyone was talking about it. Everyone had their own expectations, but. Initially it's like, what expectations can you possibly have for a military operation, the likes of which we've not seen before, um, basically in in the modern world since since World War II, people comparing it to D-Day. I mean, if you're comparing it to D-Day, how could you really have an idea of, of how it would go? Because it's like after this long period of of of, of stalemate, of sitting back, you know, one side has, def- has prepared their defenses for so long, and this is the moment they're going to go forward and try and break through. I mean, so it's like... First of all, what, what were your expectations? Did you, did, this is a question to anyone. Did did you expect Ukraine to just, uh, break through, uh, you know, with, with very little opposition, what, what were those expectations based on? And so, the, and this also comes to a, a, a kind of quite painful topic, which is the one of, of the expectations of the West. Because the West on one hand, it has been equipping the Ukrainian army and, and kind of in a way responding to what kiev has asked for in terms of what it needs for this counter-offensive it needed uh tanks of course it needed armored vehicles it needed more um artillery ammunition which it was saving up the us gave its cluster missions so on so on but we also know that it wasn't enough like ukraine has always said that it needed more and it needed more so the west has kind of given ukraine Sort of on paper, what it needs to have a go at this counteroffensive, and
1: then expect a D day,
0: and then expect, and then, and then again, a point I've repeated so many times that um, you know, Ukraine's success. Obviously, they can make their own mistakes, but more or less, Ukraine's success in this war depends on how much help it's been given. So you can't mm-hmm. give it not enough help and then expect it.
1: To have bigger gains
0: to, exactly. And, and this was, this came out in, I think it was a Wall Street journal or Washington post article, uh, talking about these early disappointments, I guess. And, and they, and they were saying that the Western officials knew that Ukraine wasn't getting enough to, oh. to be successful, like to be seriously successful in this counteroffensive, But they hoped that Ukrainian bravery and innovation would, would pull them through. So that's, it's wishful thinking is of so like expectations is one thing, but wishful thinking where you're like, you can do it guys.
1: And you're basing your policy off of that as well. Yeah.
0: So that, yeah, that, that's, that's a painful thing. And I think history will, will go back to it later, but, um, yeah, I, I still don't want to draw conclusions uh, too quickly, um, because there's so much about what, what we're seeing that we don't know yet. But it's just worth kind of managing those expectations, especially looking into the future now. Ultimately, it's clear that it hasn't met the positive expectations, the most optimistic ones that was prescribed to this counteroffensive before. You had images of breaking through on leopards, reaching the Azov Sea, liberating Melitopol, and suddenly everyone in Crimea is freaking out. Um, you know, But, but it, it goes back to why were those expectations there? And did that in any way, cor- correspond with the reality of the challenge that, that Ukraine was facing? And did they, did they receive enough for it? Like-
1: it's clear that the counteroffensive is going potentially worse than many people expected. It. Uh, it's another question whether those expectations were fair, of course. But uh, nevertheless, what have been the biggest okay. challenges so far for the Ukrainian forces in this huge operation?
0: Uh, there are several things you can divide it into. It's, first of all, just the inherent difficulty of the operation. You know, we have not seen anything like this in this war and not in any wars previously where, where a military as, as heavily armed and, and prepared as Russia has had a year to get ready, um, dig incredibly dense fortifications um, and, and place down incredibly dense minefields. Uh, and and have a superior air force as well. Maybe not air superiority, but a superior air force uh, with which to attack uh, the the units that are mounting this counteroffensive. We know about the minefields. We know, for example, that that Russia is mixing up anti-vehicle mines and anti-personnel mines, so that you know, whether you try and go with leopards and Bradleys or you try and just go with dismounted infantry, you're going to have a really hard time. And if you want to clear those mines, you have to bring some mine clearing equipment really close to the front. But then you remember this terrain is very open and flat fields. So almost anything can be seen in advance and targeted with artillery, with attack helicopters, um, with anti-tank weapons. So
1: So no matter how many anti-mining engineers we going to have, um, this is just inherently, incredibly difficult.
0: Incredibly difficult. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it boggles the miner. and the fact that again, it, it, there was so much, so much hype, so much expectations leading up to it. And then this is the mine where, where you uh, as a sapper or deminer D-miner or, or a tank operator is like expected to go forward and, and take on these defenses. It's, it's. It's really mind boggling. Uh, and then of course, yes, there's the argument that well, Ukraine wasn't given enough in the first place, uh, not given enough mine clearing equipment, we know that that's in very short supply. People can talk about long range missiles, which Mm -hmm. maybe wouldn't be super useful on the front line itself, but in terms of damaging logistics, ground lines of communication, obviously you'd rather have them than not, um. Also, you know, not, not enough shells. Zelensky said all the time, we need more shells, we need more shells. And that could be a factor in how long this counteroffensive can last. Perhaps we'd be less happy to talk about is the mistakes that were made uh, on the Why Ukrainian side. Because, I mean, I, I said this before the counteroffensive started, that it felt like, you know, in this position where the odds are kind of against Ukraine, everything had to go right.
1: And nothing ever goes right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: like. Um, what they always say, uh, the best plans fall apart at first contact with the enemy or, uh, as Mike Tyson said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Yeah. It's all, it, it all applies. Um, and I think now is, is by this time we can make some early conclusions about, uh, some of the mistakes that were made. I think, uh, one of the The biggest ones, maybe one of the most important ones, which, which was raised by military experts, but also raised by some of the commanders who were, who I was chatting to kind of informally Mm -hmm. off the record when I was in Donbass, they were saying, well, what did you expect to happen if you're sending in new brigades who haven't like new units, new men who haven't, uh, who haven't seen battle yet? Like these are some of the new brigades who were given the best equipment, the leopards, the Bradleys, and they were trained in NATO countries, which is all well and good. I'm sure that was great training, but it doesn't compare to actually being in battle, actually having combat experience. One commander told me that, uh, you know, a unit or, or a soldier is only really effective and kind of hardened as a a soldier after his sixth or his or her sixth campaign. Because the first one, it's just a given that on first contact, you know, many people will will be scared, will run away, will panic, will forget their training. And so that's what people were saying in Donbass, like they should have given the leopards to us. We know how to fight. We could have we could have mm-hmm. led, led this counteroffensive, and instead it was led by, by people who'd never seen battle before. Um, and I think, I think that's a fair, a fair assessment, um, mm-hmm. especially when it's agreed upon by both military experts and, and commanders, uh, and this is where, it goes into speculation where we don't understand what's what the ge- the general staff is seeing. We don't understand what Zaluzhny is saying. You could you could argue that, you know, the this southern front line was never gonna be the right place to attack, especially now with Russia so prepared and, and braced for an attack there, that they should have done more of a diversion somewhere else near Bakhmut or near Kupiansk or something like that. Um could be made that argument, but again, not something we can really say with any With any kind of qualification from from our position here.
1: You've already touched on the costs of all of this. And you mentioned that while Russia seems to be suffering a lot, we don't really know much about Ukrainian losses, officially at least. But it does seem to me that the overall assessment of the counteroffensive is that it's extremely costly and that it is potentially maybe one of the most bloody operations that we've seen. And, you know, just Simply by looking on Ukrainian social media, you can see like the flooding of black and white photos and, you know, images of people who died and everyone has somebody who either died or they know somebody who has that person. So it's the, the picture is overall quite dark
0: again uh, it's something we don't know much about and when we talk about something as important and sensitive as this i guess it's it's important first of all to, to have a few caveats and the, the first thing is that as much as you, you know you could get you could get that impression from, from social media like it's still you, you can't take make conclusions based on small little snippets of what you see whether that's a couple of black and white photos in a row on on social media or you know one or two drone pictures from from Mm -hmm. Russian telegram of a few leopards and Bradleys, uh, because that's war that, that happens all the time. Um, and, and so the real quantities, it is really, really difficult to know, but the cost is so important here. You're you're totally right, because the village is easy to announce with a lot of pride that it was liberated. But, but again, what was the cost? How many lives were lost in, in that operation? And we know that Ukraine can't attack in the same way that Russia was able to attack, especially Wagner, with their prisoners around Bakhmut, these human waves. Mm hmm ukraine's pool of of people that they can mobilize especially ones that are motivated to fight is much much smaller uh it's important we don't know uh but In the end, that factor that we don't know is probably one of the most important things going forward in terms of how how far this counteroffensive could potentially go and what the the consequences are for the future of the war. Uh, I have heard a few horror stories while I was there from commanders about certain units that went into battle without preparation, or they called in artillery support that came a lot later, or they wanted to start when it was still dark, but they really started when, when it was bright and I've
1: heard many of those stories you know, too,
0: they they're, they're out there and, and obviously they, most of them probably have some truth in them. And, and some of them come with stories of, of dozens, if not hundreds of, of losses in one attack, but, uh, yeah, they're, they're hard to verify. And again, it's, you have to be aware of taking these single stories and, and turning them into a whole conclusions about, about how things are going along, along the whole front. It's, it's worth remembering this, this fight has mostly been attritional for the last few months. And so there's a hope there, I guess, that, that Ukraine is, is preserving their, their people, you know, until, until the right moment.
1: The one thing that I was really surprised about in our counteroffensive is how long it took us to cross the Dnipro around the Kherson region. Because that seemed to me like it would be maybe the first priority or one of the few most important things that they'd be doing, and they would do it quite quickly. But it only happened very recently. And I mean, I assume the Kachovka Dam probably has something to do with that. But what what is your assessment about that? Because I've heard from soldiers who directly participated in those operations that they think a lot of time was lost. And by the time that Ukrainian forces really began doing it actively, so much time has passed that Russians were onto them wherever they went, that Russians knew all of our positions, they knew what to expect. And it took a really long time there. What would you say?
0: Yeah. I, I forgot to mention the part about the, the Dnipro river. This, this kind of river war has been ongoing since, since the liberation of Kherson, and, and, you know, it keeps coming up. We hear about, about raids on the left bank. We Mm -hmm. hear that, you know, for a few days, Ukrainian forces have, uh, usually special forces uh, have, have taken uh, a, a village or two or a couple of streets with like, and this is very swampy, swampy terrain with a few holiday homes usually. Um. What we heard recently seems to be the most substantial, the most serious uh, kind of landing attempt on the on the other side. But it's worth remembering here: the fog of war is still really thick. We still don't know. I mean, the idea of crossing, you have to cross the river, then you have to bring more and more things over, more logistics, vehicles, fuel, ammunition.
1: All under artillery and Russian drones. Yeah. Cetera.
0: So it, it's incredibly difficult. And it was always going to be, always going to be incredibly difficult. And we still don't know, even with this attack, we still don't know. Uh, people have said there's a bridgehead, which is when you already have a permanent president, presence. Um, but we, we don't know that that could be there. They could expand on it in the next few weeks but it also could be they could retreat uh we, we still don't know and it's yeah they i feel like they again i can't i can't judge whether this was the right time to to do that it, obviously it has the effect of of trying to spread the Russians thin and force them to allocate resources in a different place but in terms of a place to actually attack and move forward and take territory that, I mean, that really is like D-Day because you have to, you have to perform right. this amphibious landing and, and start from nothing. So yeah, definitely one thing to to keep an eye out on in the next few weeks.
1: In our last counteroffensive offensive episode back in June, you described how Ukraine had to eventually decide uh, where and which main direction it's going to commit the majority of its forces that this kind of breakthrough important moment is going to come. Has that happened yet?
0: Yeah, it's a it's a very good question, and it's a question that doesn't have a super clear answer, unfortunately. Um, what we have seen is Ukraine had the so-called Ninth Army Corps and the Tenth Army Corps, which were two groupings of brigades that were largely held in reserve, and and they were largely understood to be uh, kind of designated to to take part in this counteroffensive. And as I said before, maybe that wasn't a great idea to focus this reserve force to build it around around these new brigades although some of them are have some have some more experience but the idea as uh, you know military experts we've talked to have said the idea was that the ninth army corps would kind of reach the first main defensive line in the south and then the, and then maybe even break through it and then the 10th one so more brigades that were kept in reserve would be there ready to exploit that breakthrough so to push even further forward to clear the sides to you know and that that's that's the kind of best case scenario where big territory is liberated, like like in Kharkiv or Sherson last year, but uh obviously that kind of breakthrough hasn't happened, but we have seen uh, units from the 10th Army Corps, which was meant to be held in reserve, already uh, being sent into battle. So that, I guess, is some kind of commitment. Again, maybe that's a sign of the fact that Ukraine thinks the breakthrough is coming soon, or maybe they just feel they need they need to support the the units that are already involved in in the battle in, in the counter offensive because they're taking too lo- too many losses they're running out of ammunition. I was just going to uh, say maybe too quickly.
1: maybe the losses are so high that this kind of plan is not really working out.
0: Yeah, it's possible. And and when I say commitment of the Tenth Army Corps, you know that's not everyone. That's not all of the Leopards that. That the Ukraine, Ukrainian army has, or all of the Bradleys, or all of these reserve forces. It's you know, different units all at once, um, battalions and companies from one mm-hmm. brigade and some from another, just according to what's needed. So it doesn't look like they've gone for this all-in commitment yet. And they might not do it. You know, it's always remember it's worth remembering. It they they might choose not to. They might say, look, it's just not not the right time. The we conditions, changed the plan. Yeah, we changed the plan. The conditions are just even harder than we expected. And it doesn't make sense to, to lose more, more of our lives on this. Uh, we'll see. There's still time. People talk about the autumn rains um, and so on. And then winter comes and people expecting Russia to attack more in winter. So when it comes to commitment, it's, it's, it's not black and white. But um, it should be clearer in a month or so.
1: So given the fog of war and all of the things we don't know and the kind of inherent difficulty and unpredictability of everything that's going on, is there anything that we can even expect at all going forward? What's something that we should be looking out for in the next few months?
0: Yeah, so going forward, obviously we'll be looking at the map. We'll we'll be looking at, as we always are, about whether there are big successful pushes, assaults to take more territory. But if not, you know, Otherwise, it's always worth remembering. Like we'll 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 be looking at to see whether Ukraine maintains the initiative. Obviously, if we if we start to see Russia pushing back around Velika Asilka, or Bakhmut, or Zaporizhia, then you know that's probably means the counteroffensive is over. But so long as Ukraine is still moving forward, things things could change. They could change quickly. It's obviously Ukraine when it. it undertakes these large-scale offensive operations, they are going to be using their artillery ammunition at a higher rate than is normally sustainable, uh, because that's just what you need. And, and we know that Ukraine saved up a lot of ammunition for this, but we know that it's also limited. And, you know, you, the US, the Europe uh, are struggling with, you know, raising uh, production scales to to the level of the Russians. And so at some point, you know, things have to culminate. And it, We'll see what kind of successes Ukraine can get before they culminate, um, but that's just, that's just inevitable. Um, in the meantime, what we'll focus on, I guess, is, is the attrition. So, you know, in, in, the, in the really long term, People talk about this on the front line as well. It seems that it's getting harder and harder for each side, for both sides, to conduct big, successful offensives, right? We saw that um, with Russia in winter. They failed around Vukzadar, around Avdivka. They had some ses- success around Bakhmut, but we... S- we talked about what the cost of that was. And now Ukraine is really struggling to move forward in their own summer offensive. And that makes sense because because the units are tired and everyone's digging in, everyone's digging more trenches, putting more minefields down. And so in that scenario, we reach a point where Territory becomes less important because you're not expecting either side to to make these big offensives, and it's really about which side can win, kind of more the attrition battle. Which side is better at using artillery, using drones, using precision uh, weapons to to degrade the other side, and which which side can replenish its own forces um, better. So it, it's still early to say for sure, but I think it's quite likely at the end of the day, no matter how much success this counter-offensive has or doesn't have, that this kind of long attritional war is what we can see in the next year or two.
1: We're now going to be moving to some questions that we received from our supporters, our community members. As always, I'll take the time to remind you that it's really easy to support the Independent. You just have to go to coindependent.com membership and donate to us. There is an option for a one-time donation and also different tiers to become a member of the community and support us monthly for as little as $5 a month. All monthly supporters get uh, really cool perks like access to um, discussions with editors, exclusive events. You also get access to a Discord server, which includes uh, all community members and us. And we try to participate as much as possible. You can shoot us questions and share opinions. So, and also our favorite perk, of course, is the fact that you get to send us in questions before every single podcast episode. And we try to incorporate as many of them as we can. So, the first question that we got was regarding the counteroffensive, what is the biggest need for Ukraine? And what is needed to ultimately accomplish the goals of Ukrainian forces?
0: What Ukraine needs for the counteroffensive. We talk about F sixteens and so on, but the most important thing is ammunition. Ammunition, ammunition, ammunition. Shells, shells, shells. Uh, more and more of that is what Ukraine needs to protect its own troops going forward to deliver the most possible damage at the the highest rate of fire, I guess, to Russian lines before before sending their own their own people in. And artillery has been the probably the most important part of this war the whole time. And again, this is not just about counteroffensive operations going forward, taking territory. As I said, this is this is what Ukraine needs to to kind of stand a chance in a long attritional war because then it will be a a battle of shells versus shells more or less and with shells of course comes drones Um, uh, we know how important they are for correcting artillery fire we know how important they are for reconnaissance when we talk about infantry assaults and defending from infantry assaults Mm -hmm. that's one thing soldiers talk about uh constantly on the front lines but on top of all of this we have the new arena of uh, attack drones and kamikaze drones we see russia really stepping up the manufacture of their lancet kamikaze drones which unfortunately have actually been really effective and and cheap uh, in this in this in this war and um, we know that both sides are really moving forward with fpv drones which are very simple drones you can construct a a couple of hundred dollars and and maybe even take out a tank or an artillery piece. So, you know, it remains to be seen in this long attritional war that we probably have ahead of us, Uh, you know, how much the drones kind of still increase in importance compared to artillery or whether artillery will still be king. but but I think that's what's what's needed. Obviously, yeah, more mine clearing equipment is always appreciated, more tanks eventually, air defense, planes, everything. but but I think my impression from this trip, especially is that it's it's already time to look beyond the counteroffensive weather, you know it's successful or not, and, and look at this long war because the Ukrainian military needs to defeat the Russian military, whether they take Melitopol or Tokmak or not, the Ukrainian military needs to defeat the Russian military. And that can only happen with lots and lots of shells and lots of drones.
1: Speaking of drones, that is actually the next question from our community that I wanted us to address. So the community members said that they've read about quote, clever new drones. And the question is, has Ukraine been able to stay ahead of the Russian technology? I guess the community member is referring to all of this hyped up domestic production of Russian drones that you mentioned. So what's happening on the Ukrainian side? Are we following up as well?
0: Drones can be clever, but it's more important that their operators and their builders are clever, I guess. And in that respect, I spent actually some time with with a unit that specialized in kind of homemade FPV drones, these suicide drones, some, some FPV drones that don't actually blow up, but they drop a little bomb so they can fly back and be reused. And it was really interesting watching them work. Um, you know, they, they can be really effective, but they can have a lot of problems as well with the the signaling, with the flying, with the engineering of the little mechanism that drops the bomb, for example, that's, that's something we struggled with when I was there with them. And so like the, the the videos you see of like really cool FPV drone strikes, that's, that's about 15, 10, 15% of the time that everything goes perfectly well. And the, the guy who was kind of tinkering in his workshop in this village near the front line, you know, working on his own drones, innovating, fixing them, you know, he said, these are cool, but at the end of the day, it's like, uh, (laughs) it's like an overblown, uh, children's toy. Like it's, it's a glorified children's toy that that's being used as a weapon of war and it's not a permanent solution you know these these are drones that are assembled with parts from from different different factories in china different batteries 3d printed parts old munitions that are strapped onto them so in that respect you know ukraine's got plenty of clever people making plenty of clever drones i guess but it's it's a worry in the way that that russia's able to really do this on an industrial scale. And we and, can't. On a standard scale. And well, there are lots of Ukrainian initiatives working on it. Uh, a lot of the foreign help has not been focused on this. We heard a lot about the American switchblade drones, which were meant to be really cool, but they turned out to be pretty useless compared to a drone you can put together for a couple of hundred dollars because they just don't, they're over-engineered. They don't take enough, they don't have a big enough payload on them. So that's something where uh, Ukraine will struggle, but will I think already there's this awareness building among the, the military, among the people, and among the military leadership that this is something where, where they need to step up their game if they're going to stay, stay in the game with Russia.
1: Well, Francis, as always, thank you so much for being here. It was very interesting to listen to you. And stay safe on those trips.
0: I'll do my best.
1: Also this week, Russia has attacked Ukrainian ports seven times since Moscow pulled out of the Black Sea Grain Initiative, Ukraine's president Volodymyr Zelensky said in his latest evening address. And Ukraine's National Resistance Center said that Russia is preparing a provocation at the Kursk nuclear power station involving the evacuation of some of the local population. You can find our show on YouTube and all audio platforms every Friday morning. If you like this episode, please subscribe to us and like our content wherever you're listening to this podcast. Please consider donating to us to support the Cove Independent by going to CoveIndependent.com membership and follow us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening.